The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to Nobody Told Me. I'm Jan Black. And I'm Laura Owens. And Tracy Alloway is an award-winning psychologist, author, TEDx speaker, and TV contributor who has spent her career studying working memory. Her research on the topic has been featured on the Today Show, Good Morning America, Forbes, and Newsweek, as well as in countless journal articles. She's a blogger for Psychology Today and the Huffington Post and is currently an associate professor at the University of North Florida. Tracy, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to this. We mentioned that you're an expert on working memory. What is working memory? Working memory is our ability to work with information. I like to think of it as our active memory. It's the memory that we use when we're talking to someone and we have to pull a fact from our long-term memory and match it up with what's going on directly in front of us. So it's it's almost like that post-it note that's, that... Um, you know, that memory that you're using at the moment in a job interview, when you're having a conversation with someone, when you have to remember something at that moment. And is good memory a heritable trait? I think that's what we're discovering. Is it, There's definitely uh, something we get from our parents, so it's something else you can blame your mom or dad for. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but <laughs> Always looking for those, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, But the good news is that there's also growing uh, research to suggest that we can train and boost our memory through a variety of simple things at any age. So it's not something that is fixed or set simply because of that um, genetic uh, association. But what are the factors that might determine how effective our working memory is? Well, that depends on your age. So definitely there's an age-related difference in working memory. Uh, working memory continues to develop right up into our 20s and even our 30s. That's the front of our brain, known as the prefrontal cortex, is constantly developing, and that um, affects our working memory. As we get older, our working memory can be affected not so much by um, it decreasing, but sometimes because we're overloaded. So again, if we think back of the image of the post-it note, we may still have a good working memory, but now it just gets filled up with a lot more space, a lot more other things that we're we're thinking about. uh, You know, we're multitasking, we're thinking about a, a load of other information that we need to accomplish, and that can use up our working memory space. Yeah, and there was a really interesting article that I saw you were quoted in about how people who couldn't forget their past could have a really unique kind of OCD. Yes, yes. Um, And that, you know, that can also work to a disadvantage if you're holding on to uh, different aspects of your memory. Um, One of the pieces of research that I recently finished was with PTSD in veterans, and we wanted to be able to understand how we could maybe improve working memory in some of these individuals. So we looked at something very simple. We looked at coloring, you know, those mandalas that are very popular on Amazon, um, those coloring books. And so we gave them two options. Uh, They did both of these options and we could compare the difference. And we found that when they were given a blank piece of paper 
and, you know, just 12 minutes and, and some color pencils. And we said, draw whatever you want. It was that simple activity that was able to improve their working memory significantly. And one of the reasons we think that's happening is because when you're given that blank piece of paper, you actually have to use your working memory to um, to plan, to have a goal, to think about how you're going to accomplish the goal. So some of our vets, for example, found that quite a difficult task. They weren't entirely sure what to do. Some ended up writing their daily schedule down for us. Some took a long time to plan what image or picture they wanted to create for us. So that is a great example of how we can use working memory. And that simple task actually helped boost their working memory. Well, I think most of us are, are familiar with the term short-term memory and long-term memory. But uh, I'm gathering that working memory is not really short-term memory, but it's closely related to that? Yes, it is. So short-term memory is, if you think of a, an arrow coming into your brain, short-term memory is the information you're getting at the moment. So at a party, someone introduces themselves, short-term memory says, oh, that's Bob. And now it's your working memory that has to connect that name Bob with a piece of information your friend might have told you, like, oh, Bob works in sales. You remember I mentioned him last week. That's your working memory that consolidates or joins those two pieces of information together. And then we keep moving on to the hippocampus. That's the part of the brain that stores our long-term memory, where you may store that for later thinking, oh, yeah, I need to make an appointment with the sales team next week. I'll have to remember Bob is my contact. And that goes into your long-term memory. Can anybody improve their working memory if they want to? Yes, and I think that's what's really exciting is um, there's a whole host of very simple things that we can do, daily habits that we can do that can make a difference. And I talk a lot about this in my book, The Working Memory Advantage. But one quick example is um, we've uh, one study found that using peppermint and rosemary essential oils actually boosted working memory. And that's because it plays a role in a neurotransmitter called acetylcholine. And acetylcholine is uh, involved in a number of things. Well, one of the things it's involved in is memory. And the use of peppermint and rosemary essential oils opened up uh, this neurotransmitter and allowed people to actually use their working memory more effectively. So you can see this benefit right away. Um, other things, we've also, I've uh, published studies looking at barefoot running. I'm, I love running and I used to live in Scotland and one of the things I started doing when I lived in Scotland was running barefoot because uh, you know, we, we were close to the highlands and it was the ground felt nice and soft. But we did notice that if you weren't paying attention, um, if you're near a cow pasture, you could end up stepping in something a little warm and squishy. So <laughs> You would remember that. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. And, you know, I noticed that I was maybe more attentive when I was running instead of zoning out or, you know, you know, kind of turning off, as it were. And so that's we conducted a study at my university where we were able to look at different runners to see how their working memory differed when they ran with shoes, without shoes, when they had to focus on targets on the running track and when they didn't have those targets to look at. And we found that barefoot running improved their working memory by more than 20 percent, but only when they had to focus on targets as they were running. So I think that one of the reasons barefoot running could be good is because you you have to pay attention, just like you know I did when I was running near those cow pastures. But if, even if you're on a beach or in a you know in a, in a field, you're constantly looking at the ground, and that's a kind of mini working memory workout, and you can see benefits right away. Going back to what you were talking on uh, about a minute ago, the essential oils in memory and the rosemary. What's the practical yes. application with that knowledge? 
How can we use so that? Some people use it. Yeah. So if you have, uh, a, you know, to take a test, for example, or if, you know, you're going to a meeting where you have to recall some pieces of information and you don't want your working memory to let you down, putting a drop of that either on a, on a garment or a Kleenex in your pocket is a great way to improve your working memory as you're consuming information. Um, another tip, you know, as you mentioned, I teach at a university. So one of the tips I give to my college students is if they have to learn new information, studies find that we are more likely to remember that if we learn it just before bedtime. And for two reasons. One is called the interference effect. When we learn it just before bedtime, we reduce the possibility that new information will come in and interfere with that of what we're learning. So it kind of preserves that. We don't get that information disrupted. Another reason is that sleep helps consolidate what we're learning. So if you, you know, if you have an exam, now don't do this the night before an exam. It's not to cram, but it's more just to get that new information in on a daily basis. So if you, you know, if you're learning new terminology or new vocabulary, learning before bedtime is a great strategy to remember that information for longer. I wanted to get into your TEDx talk. I was really fascinated by it. Um, it's called Facebook Fearless, How Social Media Can Be Good for You. And you saw this example um, really in your own life. And the story is that you got injured while you were skiing on vacation and you posted an Instagram mm-hmm. where strangers, not just your friends, strangers also responded um, and they made you yes. feel better. They were even posting direct posts to you, not just saying like, hey, we <laughs> hope you feel better, but they, they were writing some pretty cool things to you. So how did social media make these people more empathetic? That's one of the things I wanted to address from a research perspective is you hear a lot of negative aspects about social media. And one big thing you hear about is society of generation, me, 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 that actually with the rise of social media, we're also seeing um, a rise in narcissism because you have more opportunity for self-presentation and, and so on to kind of create your ideal self online. And with the rise of narcissism, we're seeing a decrease in empathy. So I wanted to investigate this directly and just and really look to see if that is indeed the case. And so we had, I think, uh, around 400 individuals, young adults, where we gave them tests of narcissism. So we asked them to choose one of two statements, things like, um, I like to stand, you know, I like attention to be directed to me versus I prefer to be in the background. And we also ask them questions from a standardized empathy scale, things like sometimes I try to understand my friends better by imagining how things look from their perspective. So we wanted to look at uh, how they use social media, things like Facebook and so on, how they rank themselves from a narcissistic perspective, and also how empathetic we found, how empathetic they were. And what we found is really interesting that it depends. <laughs> it depends on how they use social media. So if they, I, I called it more uh, personal. So in other words, if they were more likely to engage in social media by actually uh, writing a comment, um, you know, sharing someone's photos, chatting with them. I call that the personal aspect of social media. Then that was associated with higher levels of empathy. Now, in contrast, you have other people who use social media more to post links or kind of check in to restaurants or share what they're doing on a particular app. I call that the impersonal use of social media. And we found that that was not associated with higher levels of empathy. So in other words, if you use social media as a form to engage, then you're also demonstrating higher levels of empathy. And in fact, we just finished a study. It's just hot off the press. You're the first ones hearing this. But we just finished a study with around 500 individuals uh, across different demographics from 18 up to 60 years of age. And we were also looking at altruism. 
um, you know, this idea that you, you want to have these positive pro-social behaviors. So think of that ice bucket challenge, for example, for ALS and, uh, and how social media helped to create this movement. And again, we found a very positive way of how people use social media. The more they uh, chose to use social media to connect and to engage, the more likely they were to also engage in uh, more altruistic behaviors online as well. So we see lots of you know, potential benefits for that aspect. What about the attention span, the impact of, of social media on our attention spans? That's a great question. And that's another criticism that's often leveled against social media. Um, I know at one point there was a study circulating that, you know, today's generation has a, a smaller attention span than a goldfish. I don't know if you <laughs> saw that those headlines. Um, but my response to that is we have learned to prioritize what's important for us. So if you think of a goldfish, they have very few predators. They have quite a cushy life. You know, they've got that whole bowl to themselves usually. They don't have to watch how they're fed daily. Um, but that's not typically what a life is like for, for us on a daily basis. We constantly have to make decisions, often very quickly. We have to move from one uh, stimulus to another. And social media, I found, and again, in another published study, I found that people who are actively engaging in social media have what I call a floodlight brain. And that's in contrast to a spotlight brain where you focus on one thing at a time uh, sequentially. So you look at A, when you finish A, then you look at B and so on. But I found that people who are actively engaged in social media can do A, B and C simultaneously. So they can switch from a text to a post, to a tweet, to an email and go back and forth without losing their efficiency. And I think in part, Technology is helping to create a different way in which we use attention more effectively. And that's a positive thing because that's how our world is, is shaping. We often don't have the luxury of just doing one thing and complete that fully before we move on to the next task. As somebody who's a millennial and who has grown up in a different age than my mom, having my phone with me all the time, mm -hmm. um, I agree with you about the idea of being able to pay attention to more than one thing at a time with the floodlight brain. But at the same time, mm -hmm. I think my mom would definitely agree. And most adults um, who are of her age would agree that even if I am saying like, no, I'm paying attention to you. If I'm on Instagram or if I'm on Facebook, I think they would say the quality of my attention isn't necessarily there. What do you think about that argument? And I think this goes back to a key part of working memory, which is we have to do two things when we use our working memory. And this is true when we're online or offline. The first thing we have to do is we're constantly filtering. We're deciding to what information we need to prioritize. And the second thing we're doing is figuring out uh, is getting rid of our distracting information. So let's take the example you used with looking at Instagram while having a conversation. You are engaging simultaneously in listening to that conversation and thinking, uh, not important, not important. So you're filtering out what's not relevant to you. Oh, she's talking about something this weekend. Yeah, that is important. I'll store that for later. And you're engaging in that same process in Instagram. So if you think of that feed, you're thinking, yeah, okay, another food post, another workout post. Okay, not interesting. Oh, this one, I like this. Okay, I'm going to remember this one for later or save it. So working memory, we use that in the same way, whether it's offline or online, where we have to decide what information we want to prioritize. So I think technology just lets us do that in a microcosm and in a very quick pace. So it actually, again, gives us this filtering skill in a very uh, quick and controlled environment. So again, I, I, I view that as a positive because we have to do that in everyday life. If you're in a meeting, you know, we do that anyway. We, we listen to that information and we're constantly filtering what's relevant and what's irrelevant. 
I think it's awesome, too, that you did your talk about how social media is beneficial because it seems like anymore everybody's always talking about how awful social media is. But you made the argument in there that this generation actually has been a lot more supportive and empathetic, um, like we were just talking about um, with other people, like if they're going through rough times. But how would this translate into if they were one-on-one? So if you were to see a person in person that was just diagnosed with cancer, you maybe wouldn't be able to say the same things that you would if you saw it on Facebook, like you could think out your response. How how do those differ? I think, first of all, when we do respond in social media, it's often very quick. I think very few people take time to construct a lengthy message. We may do that in email, for example, but less so in social media. Usually it's a quick post, maybe, you know, thinking about you or my thoughts are with you or, you know, call me if you need. So we're doing that very quickly. But I think the other benefit of having that online connection that can translate to offline is that you can now know some information about them that they may not be willing to share with you face to face. So if you see them, you could say, oh, I saw that post. I'm so sorry about your family member. Or I saw that you were moving. How exciting. How do you feel? Whereas before you may see them and it could be a very shallow or superficial conversation because they may not you know, feel comfortable at that moment when you're just sort of passing each other at the coffee shop to share that about themselves. But because you're following them on social media, you instantly feel that greater sense of almost intimacy or closeness that you can have that greater connection, even if it's for a brief moment. And I think that's also really powerful. I think that as people, we're hardwired to seek out the social connection and psychologists have demonstrated this right from infancy that we we crave that attachment. And so social media can offer that to us if we choose to engage that we can then transit to when we see the people, you know, in real life, we can foster and continue to engage and say, oh, I, I read that, what you wrote yesterday, how are you feeling today? Or you, do you need someone just to hang out with or can I help with anything? Whereas again, before that, uh, uh, you know, without knowing that, it would be hard to facilitate a greater connection. Yeah. Now, can you talk to us about the study you did on the connection between lying children and memories and that the better they were at working memory, the better they are at covering up lies? Yeah, that was a really fun study. And it was actually the findings were featured on um, both the Today Show and Good Morning America. And one of the motivations for me doing that study was to understand when this shift occurs in lying behavior. In other words, when do children actually get good at lying? And does that change correspond with our change in our working memory skills as well. So, you know, if you ask a four-year-old, a five-year-old, did you eat the cookie? They'll say no. And if you ask them a follow-up question, like, well, why are there crumbs in your face? They'll probably say, oh, I don't know, or you probably put it there. Or they, you know, their, their answers aren't very feasible or very plausible. But as they get older, they, they may come up with more, you know, more thought-out answers. And so, That's what we looked at. We looked at a group of six and seven-year-olds. We tested their working memory, first of all. And then we gave them a situation where we asked them some questions about a made-up cartoon character. So we said, there's this cartoon called Space Boy. What is the name of the main character? And we just made this up. There's no right or wrong answer. But the children, they don't know this. So we write the answer in a card and we place the card face down on the table and we leave the room. And in in a cruel fashion, I suppose we tell them that they can't look or peek at that card. (laughs) And the whole time, you know, we have a a camera trained on them to see what happens. And interestingly, we found that the children who had good working memory were better able to cover up their tracks when we came back in the room. So we'd ask them, did you look? What do you think the answer is? Why do you think that was the right character's name? 
the ones with good working memory would come up with answers like, oh, that's my favorite cartoon. I watch it every Saturday. Or that's my brother's name. That's how I knew that was the character's name, too. Whereas those with poor working memory had a harder time. They would get frustrated quite easily. They would just say, you know, I don't know, or I just guessed, or I think that's the right answer. So they didn't really formulate a, a clever or plausible answer. Working memory is really important in this kind of behavior because you have to keep in mind multiple things. You have to keep in mind what you know, what you think the researcher knows, and what you want to tell them that you think they want to hear. So it's keeping all those threads in place that is a big working memory load. So, you know, as a parent, if you have a child that's telling you very plausible lies, take that as a sign that your child is highly intelligent. Well, that sounds good. Uh, Tracy, our show is called Nobody Told Me, and we always like to ask our guests, what is your nobody told me lesson? What is it that you've learned in in doing this research and in working on working memory? What is it that you've really learned that, that nobody could have told you about and that may have surprised you? I think one of the things that surprised me is that there's that working memory can be improved. Um, One great example that I love, and it's included in my book, The Working Memory Advantage, is that uh, they were looking at Alzheimer's uh, in a population of nuns, and they found that something the nuns did in their early 20s made all the difference in preventing them from showing signs of Alzheimer's as they age. And that was using the working memory to engage in creative writing. And just simple tasks that we do now can make such a difference as we get older to actually preserve and buffer our working memory. And um, I wish I knew that when I was younger, but certainly I'm, I'm trying to do more writing now. <laughs> oh, oh, man, that's it's, great advice. It, it seems like you have so many resources available for people. And where can they check those out? Um, I have a website, tracyalway.com, and it includes uh, links to my TED Talk that you mentioned, um, links to the books that I publish are all available on Amazon. There are articles, journal articles, and uh, there's a contact box. I'd love to hear from you on those guys as well. And those clips from the Today Show and Good Morning America were really fun to watch, too, about lying children. So (laughs) (laughs) they were were fun. You've done some really interesting work. Tracy, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Our guest has been Tracy Alloway. She's a memory expert, a psychologist, and blogger for Psychology Today and Huffington Post, in addition to being the author of eight books related to memory, including The Working Memory Advantage and Training Your Brain for Dummies. I'm Jan Black. And I'm Laura Owens. You've been listening to Nobody Told Me. Thank you for joining us. 